Welcome to the teaching ministry of Calvary Chapel South London. You can visit us at calvarychapelsouthlondon.org. Heavenly Father, thank you so much this afternoon for the fact that you're here with us by your Spirit. And in conjunction with that, we have your Word. And we thank you that your Word is God-breathed. It comes from your very being. And we're grateful that it is profitable. That means it's going to benefit us with regard to teaching and reproof and correction and instruction. Thank you, Father, that your word is beneficial with regard to training us. And that is in righteousness. That the man of God, that the woman of God, that the child of God may be complete and competent and fully equipped for every good work. We pray that you do that this afternoon in our lives. Build us up, we pray, in and through your word, for Jesus' sake. Amen. Hi, everyone. My name's Robert. I'm one of the pastors here at Calvary Chapel, South London, serving with Pastor Patrick and Pastor Ephraim. And it's just a great privilege again to be with you this morning. If you're joining us for the first time, we're doing a series through the book of Acts. And um, we've been looking at Paul's second missionary journey. I say his second missionary journey. We're actually going to complete his second missionary journey today. And we're going to begin his third missionary journey. And our topic is the growth and development of Christian believers. The growth and development of Christian believers. And we're going to be looking at Acts chapter 18, verse 18, right through to chapter 19, verse 10. We are progressively making our way through this book, verse by verse, and line upon line. So if you turn to Acts 18, I'm going to go ahead and read from verse 18. It says, After this, Paul stayed many days longer and then took leave of the brothers and set sail for Syria, and with him Priscilla and Aquila. At Sencria, he had his hair cut, for he was under a vow. I'm reading from the ESV. Verse 19, and they came to Ephesus, and he left them there. But he himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they asked him to stay for a, a longer period, he declined. But on taking leave of them, he said, um, and I'm going to read from an addition from another translation. He says, I must by all means keep this coming feast in Jerusalem. I will return to you if God wills. And he set sail from Ephesus. When he had landed at Caesarea, he went up and greeted the church and then went down to Antioch. After spending some time there, he departed and went from one place to the next through the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. Now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. 
He began to speak boldly in the synagogue. But when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when he wished to cross to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. When he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed. For he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. Chapter 19. And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples. And he said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, no, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, into what then were you baptized? They said, into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is, Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There were about 12 men in all. And he entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. They continued for two years so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. Now, how many of you remember a TV program called Different Strokes? Like, what are you talking about, Willis? Gary Coleman, right? You know that he died in May this year. Well, Gary Coleman, as you probably are aware, suffered from a, a condition called focal segmental glomerular sclerosis. And I'm not going to repeat that. He had a growth defect. He only grew to four foot inch, eight inches tall. He's a very funny guy, but a very sad guy because he had an abnormality. Can abnormalities like this, that is stunted growth, be apparent in our Christian experience? Now, I read a sizable portion of scripture, and if you're unfamiliar to Calvary Chapel, South London, we take God's word quite seriously, and I'm hoping that we're going to see today that it's God's word that is going to contribute to actually helping us to grow, particularly and specifically spiritually. Now, two weeks ago, we spent time with Paul in Corinth. It was a very affluent, but it was an immoral city. Without any form of income, Paul resorts to his day job, working during the week and doing ministry in his spare time. He meets fellow tent makers Aquila and Priscilla, and as usual, he's opposed by the Jews because of his message, and he becomes fearful until the Lord visits him and comforts him through a vision. Then there's an amazing turn of events. 
Instead of Paul being persecuted, his persecutors end up being persecuted. His Jewish opposition are persecuted by the, by the natives, by those who are actually living in this particular city, which enables Paul now to remain in Corinth for 18 months, trouble-free. Last time we saw the new Jewish ruler of the synagogue get a beating in verse 17. Do you remember his name? Sosthenes. Amazingly, as a result, later on we see Sosthenes get saved and becomes a Christian. Listen to Paul's introduction in his letter to these same Corinthians. He says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 1 and 2, Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes. The beating, the, beating, the beating done him good. And Paul writes in verse 2 to the church of God right here that is in Corinth. So we see two officials from the same synagogue get converted. First it was Crispus in verse 8 and now Sosthenes. And verse 8 goes on to say, And many others who heard Paul preach the gospel believed and they were baptized. So we observe people hearing, believing, and then getting baptized or responding to the gospel. Now, if you're a Christian, on a very basic level, you must be able to identify with these points. In this order, with regard to your Christian development and growth. If, if we define growth, it could be said that growth is increasing conformity to the character of God as revealed in Christ. Increasing conformity to the character of God as revealed in Christ. And that's what we want to see. And this is where it starts. What God says in in verse 19, was true about Corinth. Remember, he said that, he said to Paul in comforting, comforting him, he said, I have many people in this city. I wonder what God would say about London. I wonder what God would say about South London. Do you believe that God has many people in this city? Well, me and Brian, we both believe that God has many people in this city <laughs> and, I can, and I can actually prove it 15% of the members of this church are new believers now I can confidently give you those figures because we now have a membership list hold tight for further statistics in the coming months <laughs> Now, five years ago, the Lord could have said to us here, I have many people in this city. And now, five years later, voila. People now in the church who weren't here 
five years ago. And I don't just mean sitting on a chair in this building. I mean members of the body of Christ who have now been saved by God with regard to eternal salvation. See, the Lord Jesus said in John chapter 10, verse 16, speaking to his disciples, he said, I have other sheep that are not of this fold. So he's looking at his disciples, right? And he says, I've got other sheep apart from you that are not yet in the fold. And he says, I must bring them also. Looking at the the 12 disciples, or should I say 11 disciples, because we know that scripture says at a later point that Jesus, looking at Judas, knew that he was a devil. And knew that he wasn't actually a part of the fold, but that was going to be exposed later on, right? And in similar fashion, hopefully in another five years, we'll have other individuals who will become a part of the fold here at South London that are not yet a part of the fold. The Lord could say a similar thing to us. I I have other sheep that are not here in the fold, but I must bring them also. And that's a part of the reason why we're here. Many of you were not Christians five years ago, but you are now. And in similar fashion, we're going to see that People in Corinth were being converted. They were being regenerated. They were being saved. And it says, verse 18, After this, Paul stayed many days longer and then took leave of the brothers. Notice that's plural. He took leave of the brothers because they're a group now. They're a multiple now. They're plural now. He says he took leave of the brothers, and when Paul first came to Corinth, if you remember, there was only Aquila and Priscilla. They were the only two believers that we were aware of. There were no other Christians. But based on Paul's faithfulness to the gospel and God's saving grace, there is now a brotherhood, a covenant community. There is now, in Corinth, a church. And we know that because later Paul will write letters to this particular church in Corinth. And you're holding two of the letters in your hand. First and second Corinthians. This is going to be a church that's filled with believers. Which is great. And how many of you know that? These believers, they need to grow and develop. Help me. Would you repeat after me? Grow and develop. Amen. Now, how do I know that Paul desires for these individuals who have just become Christians, how do I know that his desire is to see them grow and develop? Listen to what Paul says about this very group in 1 Corinthians, the early chapters. 1 Corinthians chapter 3 says, But I, brothers, I could not address you as spiritual people, But as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ, I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now you're not yet ready, for you are still in the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? Notice in verse 1, he calls them what? 
He calls them brothers. You know, you can be a saved brother or sister who lives in a carnal, worldly, unspiritual way. You've been born again, but you haven't grown. You're still a baby. Can you see the need for growth and development? Some people say, you know what? We need to go back to the early church. That's what we need to do. We need to go back to the church in the book of Acts. Really? As if that was a perfect church. Why? We're still going to be confronted with the same problems. Immaturity. Lack of commitment. Laziness. As Paul just mentioned, imagine jealousy and strife among believers. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, he begins to talk about blatant sexual immorality that's not even seen among the pagans in the church. You want to go back to the, oh, you want to go back to the New Testament church? See, stuff that's going on around here, if you ask me, and you're talking about going back to the, back to the early church, never mind going back to the church just go to church because nothing has changed the needs are still the same because the people are still the same do you think that the word of god has anything to say to them back then that it doesn't have to say to us now do you think that the bible has anything to say to first century christians that it doesn't have to say to 21st century christians Listen to 1 Peter chapter 2. But before we read it, notice the reference to infants and milk in that last verse. Infants and milk. Listen now to 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 1 and 2. So put away all malice and all deceit. Remember, Christ, Paul is actually writing. Peter, like Paul, is writing to Christians. He says, put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. I mean, it sounds like he's right into the Caster East Enders. Verse 2, like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may what? Grow up. We're talking about the vital need for spiritual growth and development. So Paul stays at Corinth for over 18 months to see the church mature. 18 months. How long have you been a Christian? I bet for most of us it's been longer than 18 months. Plus we have our own personal copy of the Bible. Old and New Testament. Probably in different translations. The question is, are we as well developed as we should be. After this, this 18-month period, Paul leaves Corinth. And he sets sail, the text says, for where? For Syria. Now this is a country just north of Israel. We're going to see it on the map in a moment. This is where Paul will ultimately arrive, but he doesn't go there directly. No. 
Paul doesn't go directly to Antioch in Syria, which is where his home church is, but determines to go in the direction of Syria. And he won't get there until verse 22 when he arrives in Antioch. Now notice verse 18. It says that he takes who? He takes Priscilla and Aquila along with him. Now these are... These two are, are quite a, a remarkable couple. Remember, they were originally from Pontus, which is North Galatia, right, northern Turkey, or at least Aquila is from Pontus. Then he travels to Rome, where he possibly met his wife Priscilla, unless they were together prior to arriving there. Then they're kicked out of Rome by Claudius, remember last time, by Claudius the Roman Emperor, only to find themselves now in Corinth. But only for a short while, because they now end up leaving Corinth with Paul. Now, they are a very flexible couple. And evidently, they have a heart for mission and ministry. Although, check it, they didn't start off like that. They started off as baby Christians. Now, they're in ministry. Paul will later speak very highly of them. In Romans chapter 16, he says, Greet Priscilla and Aquila, my helpers in Christ Jesus. In 1 Corinthians 16, verse 19, he says, The churches of Asia, that's that whole Galatian Turkey area. He says the churches in that area, churches, plural now. There wasn't one church there before Paul went there. The churches, plural, salute you. He says Aquila and Priscilla salute you much in the Lord with the church that is in their house. I mean, this couple have grown to the point where now they are facilitating the growth of others. Can you see that? I mean, they got a church in their house. Sounds like, sounds like Pastor Patrick and Sarah's last night. Women's meeting. I mean, I don't know, 30, 40 women descend on, on their house. That was a church meeting in their house. Because the church is not the building. Oh, where's Calvary Chapel, South London? Oh, that church. Go down the road. It's at Red Post Hill. Just go past the station and turn right. That's not the church. That is the building. This is a school. We are the church. I mean, Aquila and Priscilla sound a bit like Mark and Tabitha. Last, last Wednesday, they had 25 people in their house at their community group. That is a church or a part of the church meeting in their house. Now, some of you, some of you have never even been to a meeting, let alone host a meeting in your house. Patrick and Sarah, Mark and Tabitha, Aquila and Priscilla, can you see how much they've grown? They didn't start off. Adam is the only, only man, oh, and Eve, who, who started off mature, big, adults. They weren't born. They were made. None of us started off like that. We all started off like baby Melina. And over a process of time, we became who we are, and we still hopefully are growing. 
some of us maybe in, in, in the other direction rather than growth. And Priscilla and Aquila, they didn't start off like this. They grew to become this. Surely that is God's desire, personal growth that is, for all of us. And did you notice how many times they moved? From Pontus to Rome, Rome to Corinth, and now they will follow Paul to Ephesus. Question. Let's say you're a couple. Would you be prepared to move location for the gospel? I mean, there's programs out now, relocation, relocation, relocation. People are relocating for loads of different reasons. Would you be prepared to relocate for the gospel? Would you be prepared to downsize for the gospel? Everyone's wanting to upscale. Would you be willing to move location if the Lord directed you to? Well, that's going to be determined by where you're at with regard to your personal growth. Now look at the end of verse 18. It says that Sencria, he, we suspect this is Paul, had his hair cut. Now, why would Luke, the writer of this book, make a point of mentioning Paul's visit to the hairdressers? What would be the significance of him getting his hair done? Surely this is trivial and not even worth mentioning. Someone jokingly mentioned that it was possibly Priscilla, Aquila's wife, who being a woman, recognized that Paul wasn't taking care of himself and he needed to get in touch with his surroundings. I mean, being in an influential city full of influential people in Corinth, maybe, sorry, maybe Paul needed her encouragement and he heeded it and... He got in touch with his metrosexual side. He got some hair gel, got a beard trimmer, and got himself a personal trainer. Well, that's obviously not true. Although those, although those things are not necessarily bad. I mean, I think some of us need some of that. <laughs> I have to be careful because I got myself in trouble a couple months back. But, I mean, I know I need it. I, I've been saying for years that I'm going to go... I'm going to go down to the gym. I'm going to get a, a subscription down at the gym. I was shocked. I was horrified when I found out that it was £35 a month for gym subscri subscription. But don't get it twisted. Just because I don't necessarily look overweight doesn't mean that I'm healthy. I'm not healthy. Pastor P was talking to me about cholesterol and the other day and the danger of heart disease. And this stuff's real. And... Um, Maybe some of us need to consider, I mean, it's only four weeks away, right? We need to consider for our New Year's resolution, getting some kind of gym sub subscription. And then on the other hand, there are those of us that have gym subscription, right? I'm not going to talk about those who ain't using it and are bad stewards over their finances. I'm not going to talk about them. No, joke. But there are some that maybe take this take this thing too far. They take the gym thing to an extreme. You know what I mean? And um, I'm just saying that there needs to definitely be a balance. You know what I mean? So, 
Probably the reason Paul cut his hair wasn't because he was trying to be in on vogue. He was actually under a vow, the text says. And this vow had probably started some time back. Possibly when he was temporarily delivered by God from persecution in the last chapter, if you remember. And out of gratefulness now, he makes a temporary vow to God. A bit like someone going on a fast today. You don't have to, but you, you choose to. We're not sure, but this was possibly similar to a Nazarite vow, which included abstinence from wine, and it is all right to drink wine as long as you don't get drunk, abstinence from wine and not cutting one's hair. Now, he cuts his hair that has evidently been growing, right? I've heard a few people say that Paul was short and bald. Well... I don't know about his height, but he couldn't have been bored because it says he cut his hair. Evidently, if he was bored, he wouldn't have had no hair to cut. Anyhow, the hair that was cut would be taken to Jerusalem, possibly to the temple, and burnt as an offering to God. We've seen Paul perform Jewish customs before, albeit not to be justified before God, but for the progress of the gospel, like when he had Timothy circumcised, if you remember. Not because he had to, but because he chose to for the sake of the gospel. And we see that when Paul arrives in Ephesus, the ministry is incredibly fruitful, particularly among the Jews, who seeing possibly his bald head would immediately recognize his vow. And recognizing that he was obviously committing himself to some sort of quote-unquote Jewish vow would have made them more open to listen to what he had to say. So it seems that Paul did this for a particular reason. Verse 19, and it says, And they came to Ephesus, and Ephesus. Ephesus was a major metropolitan city. It's on the east coast of Asia Minor. If you just have a look at the map there. It's kind of in the center of the map. It's in modern-day Turkey. It had a population of more than 250,000 people. And this is in the first century BC. That is 100 years before Christ. Which also made it the second largest city in the world, next to Rome, which was the largest. This city was famous for the Temple of Artemis. Now, this is a picture of the Temple of Artemis now, but here's a picture of Artemis then. It had over 100 columns, over 55 feet high. It was four times the size of the Parthenon. Do you remember the Parthenon we saw back in Athens? The Parthenon, which was on Mars Hill. This, the Temple of Artemis, or the Temple of Diana, is four times the size of that. Which actually made Ephesus one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. It had the Grand Theatre. You've probably seen this, this picture before. The Grand Theatre. I mean, forget Wembley Stadium. Check it. This could see 25,000 people. I mean, that's one-tenth of the population of this city. 
You're talking about 2,000 years ago. This city was a very, very... Um, Ephesus, later on, will become one of the seven churches in Asia, if you know your Bible, that John will write to in the book of Revelation. It's a tremendous city, a very, very important city. So, verse 19 says, And they came to Ephesus. And he left them there. Paul left Aquila and Priscilla there when he eventually will leave. Now, this is tricky, and I'm trying to take my time through it. Very, very tricky, and I'm hoping that the maps and the pictures and so on are helpful. Otherwise, you could really get stuck in the mud just going through these verses. So Paul left Aquila and Priscilla there when he eventually will take leave. But he himself, Paul that is, went into the synagogue and he reasoned with the Jews. That's, he always does that, right? That's his custom. So he comes into Ephesus. It's the first thing he does. Verse 20. When they asked him to stay for a longer period, he declined. But on Taking leave, he said to them, I must by all means keep this feast coming in Jerusalem, it says in some other translations. So it's not that he doesn't want to be here, but he's, he needs to get to Jerusalem for a purpose. And he says in response to their question, I will return to you if God wills. In this we see Paul humbly communicate his dependence on God. Echoing James chapter 4. And I think this is good for all of us to be reminded of. He says, I'll come back to you if the Lord wills. I remember my mom used to say back in the day, you know, I want to do this tomorrow if God spare my life. Same thing. You know what I mean? And it's humble. It's humility. Verse 13 of James 4 says, Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town, spend the year there, and trade and make a profit. And that's, that's how people talk nowadays, isn't it? Even going back to the whole housing market thing and relocation. People are like, oh yeah, I'm going to buy this house, I'm going to do it up, I'm going to sell it on, then I'm going to buy another house. And how, 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 what gives you the right to, to be able to make such assertions? And this is what James is saying here. He says, yet you do not know, verse 14, what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For, for you are a mist. I like the New King James and the KJV says, your life is like a vapor that appears for a little while and then it vanishes away. You know when you, when you boil a kettle and you switch it on and you turn around and you grab the cup and the tea and you, and you, you hear it making noise and click. By the, you, you look around, you see the steam. By the time you turn around, pick up the cup and go to pour it, the steam's gone. James is saying that is what your life is like. And it's becoming very apparent particularly for those in my age category. I'm in my early 40s, right? Um, my dad, my real dad, is, has passed away about eight years ago. Um, my stepdad is very, very seriously ill. He has um, dementia. My wife's dad is very sick at the moment. He has um, terminal cancer. Um, I, our brother Neil, his dad was ill and we had the funeral for him just Friday gone. And so many of us, at least in my age category, are bracing ourselves because our parents are just at that point in life. And we're reminded, aren't we? I'm reminded that, you know what, in five minutes it's going to be me. They say time has respect for no one. 
It just keeps on moving. And it's, and it's, and it's even worse when you have kids. Because like the, like, the, like, like the kettle and the steam, as you turn around and look at them, I mean, my, my, they grow, they change. My son goes to bed like five foot eight one day, and he wakes up an inch taller the next day. And they help me to realize, boy, I, even though I may not be changing, hopefully, <laughs> I, I know that I am, um, I look at them and I'm reminded that time is moving. And our lives are but a vapor that appear for a little while and then vanish away. Verse 15, this is how we ought to look at life on that basis. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. And as far as Paul's concerned, it was the Lord's will that he returned to Ephesus. The Ephesian church will see Paul return later. And so he set sail from Ephesus, verse 22. When he had landed at Caesarea, he went up and greeted the church and then went down to Antioch. So he left Corinth, which is, um, as you can see, just southern Greece. He leaves Corinth and he goes down to a city just on the coast called Centria, which is the eastern port of Corinth. And he leaves there. That is Centria, Centria, and he goes to Ephesus, which is about a 250-mile trip by sea. Then he leaves Ephesus, and then he goes to Caesarea, again, probably by boat, which is about 600 miles. And he leaves Caesarea, and he goes, which is right on the coast of Israel, and he goes to Jerusalem, which is about a 65-mile trip, and he goes up to the festival, probably Passover or Pentecost, and he visits the church. Remember the first church that was planted in Jerusalem? He visits them there. Then he goes from Jerusalem, and the text says down. It is down, although it's up. He goes north from Jerusalem, back up to um, Antioch. And it's, and it's down because Jerusalem is up in altitude, and they travel down, although it's north on the map. He goes to Antioch. He goes back to his home church. Notice Paul wasn't Paul was not an independent spirit. He's, he's responsible and accountable to his local church. Paul's an apostle and Paul's heavy. And to some degree you could say Paul don't need nobody. But as we've been journeying with Paul you see at every juncture Paul has companions consistently. There are times when he'll peel off for a minute momentarily, but he's always either joined by or desiring his brothers or his sisters to come and join him. He's not an independent spirit. Can you see? He's made that journey, but he's gone all the way back home because he's accountable to them in his local church. There's a lot more that could be said about that. Now this marks... If you have a look at the cycle, this marks the end of Paul's second missionary journey. Now, you've got these maps in the back of your Bible. I just see Harry just turned to her. Oh, maybe she was, I thought she was turning to hers. But in the back of your Bible, you've got these maps. And you probably never really kind of paid them much attention before. But we've just completed Paul's second missionary journey. So Luke, the writer of this book, he's going to fast forward now from Corinth to Antioch, 
and he's going to do it in five verses, verse 18 to 22. Covering a total of about a thousand miles, missing out all of the finer details. And it's probably because Luke wants to keep our attention on Ephesus, which is where Paul will return to by verse 1 of the next chapter. On his next missionary journey, which is going to be his third and final missionary journey. And so Luke continues to hurry us on our way. Paul leaves now his home church in Antioch, verse 23. After spending some time there, he departed. So here we are, fresh map. He leaves Antioch in Syria, just on the right of the map, that's east. He leaves Antioch in Syria, and he goes now, and he departs, and he went on his third missionary journey. So this is now the beginning of his last, last missionary journey. And it says, from one place to the next, through the region of Galatia and Phrygia. So this is sort of the direction of his travel, which is where Paul went if you remember, on his first missionary journey, but he didn't go here on his second missionary journey. He tried, but remember, the Holy Spirit resisted him and prevented him because the Lord wanted him to go somewhere else. So it says he goes, and what does he do as he goes? He goes, he's, he's strengthening or growing and developing all the disciples in the churches. So let's leave Paul for a minute in Phrygia, in this area. Verse 24, now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, just pointed that out in the map, he came from there to Ephesus. Now Alexandria, as I mentioned, is a very, very intellectual city. And we're going to see how this affects Apollos in a moment. He comes to Ephesus, that is Apollos. And this is Luke's purpose of pushing the fast forward button. Because he's trying to hurry us back to, to, to Ephesus. He, Apollos, was an eloquent man. He was competent, or in another translation it says he was mighty in the scriptures. He had a great understanding of the Old Testament. Verse 25. He had been instructed, Apollos, in the way of the Lord. And being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus. Though he knew only the baptism of John. The impression that we get is that Apollos had only been exposed to Jesus with regard to the preaching of John the Baptist. And on that basis, verse 26, he began to speak boldly in the synagogue. But when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, because remember, remember as we said earlier, Paul had left them here in Ephesus. When Priscilla and Aquila heard Apollos, when they heard my man speak, they took him and explained to him the way of God more accurately. Notice, as much as Apollos was competent and mighty in the scriptures, although he was able to teach and instruct others, he himself still needed to be developed. He still had room for further growth and development. And it's beautiful because they didn't expose him publicly, although there is a time for public exposure. They take him away quietly and they share with him the scriptures more accurately. Verse 27, 
And when he wished to cross to Achaia, remember he's in Ephesus, Achaia is just in, in it's the area where Corinth is based, it's in southern Greece. When, when he decided that he wanted to cross to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him, and possibly Priscilla and Aquila, they encouraged him to go, and they wrote to the disciples who were over in Achaia to welcome him. Now this is beautiful. Brothers and sisters from one church write to another church, recommending, verifying, vouching for a brother who had humbly and evidently made himself accountable. See, they write this letter to the church, even though Apollos is gifted and he's talented. There are no lone rangers. Everyone is accountable. Even the Apostle Paul, as we saw a minute ago. Now, now here's a question. In the light of that, can you be vouched for? Let's say you wanted to go to another church. Presumably, they're going to want to know who you are and where you're coming from. Would your church, and you may not even be a part of this church, you may not be a member at this church, you may be a member somewhere else, you may be attending another church. Can the church that you attend, can they vouch for you? See, are you making yourself accountable? Are you, like Apollos, are you willing to be instructed? Can you be recommended see Apollos could Apollos could be recommended he could be vouched for and happily so so the church in Achaia could happily receive him confidently because they knew who was sending him they knew who he was coming from they knew who he was connected to says, when he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed. Verse 28, for he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. See how important the scriptures are? I'm amazed as I look at Apollos. Look at the benefit of Apollos' growth and development. Apollos proves to actually become a pillar in the church at Corinth and a co-laborer with the Apostle Paul. In 1 Corinthians 3, verse 5 and 6, it says, Paul says, Who then is Paul? Who am I? And who is Apollos? But ministers by whom you believed. You see how Apollos is contributing to the edification of the, the church that's in Corinth? Along with Paul. But he says, look, even as the, the Lord gave to every man, he says, I've planted, and Apollos came along and he watered. But ultimately, God gave the, in, the increase. You see how amazingly the Lord is now using Apollos, a man who'd, who had no connections. He wasn't a part of any church. 
He had just experienced and understood that Jesus was the Christ from the preaching of John the Baptist. And he's now over here coming from Alexandria. He's in Ephesus now. And he's sharing what he's heard because it's blown his mind, right? But he's not connected to anybody. Until individuals who are connected recognize and they draw him in. And as he makes that connection, then they're able now to dispatch him decently and orderly to the point where now he goes and he's now functioning to the point where Paul will now call him a co-laborer that he works together with. Are you hearing me? You feeling me? You see how important this accountability and responsibility is? It's Bible. And I'm encouraged by Apollos. It's been suggested by some that this man, Apollos, could possibly be the writer of which book? Remember, he's mighty in the scriptures. And what scriptures do they have? They have the Old Testament scriptures. So he's mighty in the Old Testament scriptures. Which one of the books in the New Testament do you read and say, huh? What on earth is this all about? As it makes reference to the tabernacle, makes reference to the ark, and makes reference to the high priest and the altar and... Hebrews. It's suggested that possibly Apollos was the writer of the book of Hebrews. Remember, it's an anonymous book. I think Martin Luther actually believed that. And the book of Hebrews is an absolute masterpiece. It uses the Old Testament scriptures to point to Jesus as the mediator of a new and better covenant. Hebrews chapter 1 is a classic chapter on Jesus' superiority over angels. Chapter 3, Jesus' superiority over Moses. Chapter 5, 6, and 7, Jesus' superiority as high priest after the order of Melchizedek over the order of Aaron. Chapter 9 and 10 talks about Jesus' supremacy with regard to his blood over bulls and goats and his unique once-for-all sacrifice over the daily insufficient sacrifices in the temple. The book of Hebrews is the greatest Old Testament commentary available. And the writer of that book, whoever he was, was mighty in the scriptures. And it may well have been Apollos, who powerfully refuted, contested, convinced the Jews. In the same way that Paul had previously done when he was here. Quote in Moses, as we saw. Quote in the Psalms and quote in the prophets. Proving that the crucified yet resurrected Jesus was the Christ. He was the Messiah. He was the Savior of the world. The one through whom sinners could be reconciled to God. So Apollos, he goes back to Corinth, reaffirming the things that Paul had originally preached. In a city that the gospel had really taken hold. And the Jews were being challenged publicly. Remember, this is where they had wanted to persecute Paul, but their plan had backfired. Acts chapter 19, verse 1. And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed, going back to Paul now, Paul passed through the inland country of Turkey, Asia Minor, and he came now to Ephesus, it says in verse 1. So we, so we leave Corinth for a moment and go back to, to Paul, who was in that Galatia-Phrygia region. 
He now arrives at the, the far western extreme of Turkey in the city that Apollos had just left, where Aquila and Priscilla still are. Remember, because they sent Apollos out. There he found some disciples, the end of verse 1. This is Paul now. And he said to, the, to them, to these disciples he comes across, he says, now, 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 because they're disciples doesn't mean that they're disciples of Christ. It just says they're disciples. Many people had disciples in those days. Remember, Paul was a disciple, um, as, a, as a Pharisee, of Gamaliel. Many people had disciples. Thank you, Mark, because I forgot who, who it was, actually. And <clears throat> so Paul comes across these disciples, verse 2, and he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? Now, this clearly exposes Paul's assumption. That, you see, and Paul's assumption is that when a person believes... They ought to receive the Holy Spirit simultaneously. Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? Do you remember Acts chapter 10 with Cornelius? Cornelius says, Peter, you're here for a purpose. And Peter's like, I'm not really clear on the purpose. He's like, maybe, maybe you've got something to say to us. Remember Acts chapter 10 when we've done that? And he's like, oh yeah. And Peter shares the gospel with them. The Gentiles, remember, like Gentile dogs as far as Jews are concerned. Anyway, he shares the gospel with them. And before he can finish his message, the Holy Spirit falls on them. They get saved and filled with the Holy Spirit simultaneously. And we saw it in Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. Remember what Peter said in verse 38. When they responded to hearing him, he shared the gospel and he says, And you are the ones who are guilty of crucifying the Christ. You, in conjunction with the Romans, all of you are guilty. And furthermore, everyone's guilty because you've all sinned. And that's the reason why Jesus went to the cross ultimately because of our sins. So you're all guilty. And people are like, oh my goodness. So Peter, then what must we do? They say in verse 37. He responds in verse 38 by saying, repent. You want to know what you need to do in response to Jesus dying on the cross for your sin? Repent. That means change the way you think. That leads to a change in the, in the direction of your life. You're going in one way, doing your own thing, feeling like you're, 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 like you're the king on the throne of your life. Repentance says you're not the king. I mean, only a fool thinks he's the king or the queen. I mean, five minutes of life out there will tell you that you ain't the king. Five minutes, you know what I'm saying, with regard to a relationship. Five minutes in regard to you know, losing your job or five minutes in the world shows you that you ain't king, shows you that you ain't the queen. Am I lying? And then on that basis, you're like, okay, well, who is supposed to be king? Who's supposed to be ruling in my life? See, this is, this is, this is what they're experiencing as Peter preaches the gospel. And they say, well, Peter, what do we do? He says, change the way that you think. Make Jesus king. Okay, that's, the, that's, that's where it starts. Changing the way that you think about who's king. And then, hopefully, if that is genuine, if the change in, in your thinking is genuine, it will lead to a change in the way that you live your life. That's repentance. And he says, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the, for the forgiveness of your sins. And what? And you will receive... The gift of the Holy Spirit. He said they both work together. You repent, you know what I'm saying, accept Christ, get baptized, and simultaneously, it's like that's what you do. Then, I mean, who's, 
How are you going to get the Holy Spirit if God don't give him to you? You know what I'm saying? That's you do your, your part and then God will do his part. In that sense, they both work together. Verse 2 of Acts 19. And he said to them, wait a minute. Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? See what I'm saying? And they said, no, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, well, and so what then were you baptized? Like when you got baptized, you never received the Holy Spirit. When you got saved, you never received the Holy Spirit. And they said, well, you know what? We, we, it was John's baptism is the only baptism that we know. And then Paul's like, oh, now that makes sense. Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance. John was out there telling you, you lot. The soldiers would come and they said, all right, John, what do we do? He says, look. He says, stop. The, the, the soldiers had, an, had, had, had a, um, just a consistent, they had an attitude where they didn't really want to do their work. So they dropped their pack on someone and say, you carry my pack for me. A mile. Remember, Jesus would make reference to that. If someone asked you to carry their pack a mile, carry it two. That's what they do. John says, stop doing that. Stop using and abusing people, you soldiers. Oh, that's what repentance looks like for us. Okay. And then he speaks to different categories of people. The tax collectors. You lot, you need to repent. Well, what does that mean, John? And John would be like, well, stop extorting money from people. Oh, all right then. <laughs> that's Repentance. And this is what they'd been exposed to. And John was just telling people to repent because he was saying there's someone coming. I'm preparing the way for someone who's coming. And in order for you to be prepared, you need to repent. You need to change the way that you think. And that's all they had known. And they had been baptized possibly by John because they'd repented. But that's all they knew. They didn't know anything about the Holy Spirit. And it says, Paul said, John baptized with a baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him. That is Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Some, some churches get really um, bogged down on the fact that they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And say that if you get baptized, you must get baptized in Jesus' name. That's not the point. That's completely missing the point of the text. Yes, we get baptized in the name of Jesus. When we get baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. When we baptize, to bun the whole argument, we baptize people in the name of the Father, in the name of the Son, in the name of the Holy Spirit, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. So we cover everything. So if anybody asks you, you can say, yes, I've been baptized in Jesus' name. It's, it's really not an issue. And I think... Importantly, what's happening is here, they evidently were not Christians. They were disciples, but because you read our disciples, you can immediately think they're disciples of Christ. They're, they're not Christians. They're on their way there, and what did they do? They heard. Paul breaks it down in verse 4 for them. They heard, they believed, and they were baptized. See, they responded to the gospel. Verse 6, and when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them. Why? Because they're getting saved now. And they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. That doesn't always happen when somebody gets saved. But we've seen it happen. Now, this is the third time it's happened now in the book of Acts. And it's the first time we've seen it happen with Paul. Happened with Peter. And we see it happen in Acts chapter 2. And to some degree, it could be the Lord just rubber stamping Paul's um, authentic, um, authenticating Paul's ministry. 
what I'm saying? Again, it's speaking in tongues and prophesying. Again, this is something that churches would take and run with. Like, do you speak in tongues? Boy, well, if you don't speak in tongues, then well, I don't, you're not really saved. That's another topic for another day. Verse 7. They were about 12 men in all. It seems as if these, like Apollos, had heard about John's baptism of repentance. But where Apollos recognized the connection between John's message and Jesus, this group of 12 disciples had never been exposed to the Lord Jesus. They had just heard the message of John to repent of sin. Whereas Apollos, we saw in verse 25, he had been instructed in the way of the Lord. He taught accurately, it says, the things concerning Jesus. Yet these needed to be baptized because they hadn't experienced Christian baptism because they weren't even Christians. But in both cases, there was going to be the need for further growth and development. And we see that this was in the forefront of Paul's thinking as we conclude. Look at verse 8 and following. And Paul, he entered the synagogue and for three months he spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. That is... <clears throat> the Jews he spoke to persuading. But when some of the Jews became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way, we're going to come back to this next week, the way is a reference to the church. Are you of the way? Basically, are you in the church? Are you a Christian? Um, that because they were speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and he took these 12 disciples with him and he reasoned daily with them in the hall of Tyrannus. This is kind of like a hired facility now he uses, a bit like we use here. So Paul sets up a teaching course, a Bible school, if you like, for further training. Verse 10, this continued for two years so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. Growth and development. They are a result. Now, forgive me. I know this is going to sound harsh. You may be sitting here and think, what was that really all about? It's like, whatever. I mean, I thought when you come to church, it's supposed to be exciting. The band is supposed to get you going. So, you, you know what I'm saying? For half an hour, you have a workout and you're done. You, when, you, when, you, when you're sweating, then, yeah, that was worship. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, now, that, that, that was, that's church. Is it? And if that ain't there, the hype thing ain't there, and you don't get moved by the quote-unquote spirit, then that ain't really church. And I'm, I, I come here today and I'm like, boy, what was, what was, is that, is, that ain't church, is it? And you may have sat down and thought, man, why are we going through all these verses? I don't care where Ephesus is, I don't care where Corinth is, I don't care where Paul went. I come here to hear something about my life. I come here to, you get me? I, I, I need to know if I need to marry this girl. That I, I need to know if, you know what I'm saying, if I need... I'm thinking, I ask God about this job that, I, that I'm going for the interview tomorrow. That's why I come to church. Let me tell you, true growth and development as a genuine Christian comes by virtue of teaching and instruction. And if, if the teaching and instruction thing ain't you, you're going to struggle to grow as a believer. Because the Bible says that we're supposed to love God with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our strength, and all of our mind. Very often we can't defend the Christian faith because we don't even know what it is. And we're Christians. 
Growth and development are a result of teaching and instruction. And we see that pattern reflected in everyone that comes into contact with the gospel. You come into contact with the real gospel. You come into contact with Paul. Paul ain't going to try and hype you up. Paul ain't going to try and get your money out of you. Paul ain't going to try and make you feel good. Paul's going to instruct you in the way of the Lord. And a lot of what he says ain't going to be nice. I mean, I'm like a marshmallow. Me, Pastor E, and Pastor P, we're lightweight. I mean, you, I mean, last week, to some degree, you got a little bit of, you know what I'm saying, ministry up in your face. I mean, we... Now, what does that mean? Does that mean that, you know what I'm saying, we ain't doing our job? No, because if we was like my man last week, every week, you couldn't handle that. You can only take so much of that. Say, people say of someone like Yaakov, the, the man is a quote-unquote prophet. You know what I'm saying? I say quote-unquote, it needs explanation, and I ain't got time to explain it, but he's quote-unquote prophet. The brother will come in, and they say of a prophet, what a prophet does is a prophet afflicts the comforted. So he come in and turn the chair, like kick over tables and chairs. That's his ministry. You know what I mean? But now as a pastor, my job is to comfort the afflicted. Now, there's overlap. And this morning, maybe to some degree, I did afflict some of you who are comforted. But we've got to balance it. You know what I'm saying? And so, ultimately, without the word of God, without understanding the Bible, you're not going to grow as a Christian. You're not going to grow. Aquila and Priscilla, amazing growth and development. Apollos, a great teachable teacher. The 12 newly saved, immature disciples. Paul takes them aside and teaches and instructs them for two years. And then he's going to be able to leave them. And be able to, from another place, write to that, to that same group in that particular place, knowing that they're growing. And that's because they took what he shared with them and they applied it. I mean, I don't know how else to say it, but look at your life and determine how much you're growing. Determine how much you've grown. Determine, are you growing? Are you regressing? Man, the things that I used to know, I can't even remember them no more. Uh, where's that scripture again? This is a scripture you used to be able to quote verbatim. I'm just asking the questions in the light of the text. My prayer was at the beginning, God's word is beneficial for us. It's profitable for doctrine, for instruction, for correction. It's, you know, if you will absorb God's word, it will help you to determine whether you should marry that woman or that man. Or whether you shouldn't marry that woman or man. Whether you should leave that person that you're living with that ain't your spouse. This is going to help you to make them decisions. Maybe you're going for a job tomorrow you shouldn't even be going for. Maybe you're thinking about upsizing when you should be downscaling. This is going to help you to make those decisions, believe it or not. Now, I feel like you ain't hearing me, but <clears throat> Paul the Apostle himself, even he needed to grow and develop. Remember last time we met him, Paul was fearful. That means someone, and the Lord himself had to put his arm around Paul and say, it's all right, Paul, it's going to be all right. And teach and instruct him and say, remember, remember what you're here for, Paul. You're not here for you. You're here for me and the gospel. I've got you. You're safe. For eternity, by the way. 
You've just got a job to do now down here. Let me encourage you to get on with that. So even Paul needed instruction. Even just this last week in community group, I said something and somebody corrected me. And I thought, praise God. It was a blessing. It was humbling. But pastors need humbling. We need to still be teachable. I'm going to school. Because I want to grow and further develop. If you came here 10 years ago, there was no church here. That was then. <clears throat> but, but this is now. And there has been growth. Jesus said, I will build my church. And the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And God is building us. He's equipping us to be able to see others come in and become a part of the eternal, the heavenly city. Like Diana, our sister. She's growing and developing. Hear her testimony this morning? Baby Melina, we want to see her grow and develop. And this is the environment that God has determined that that will take place. Amen? That's the purpose of the church. So, it's all about growth. Increasing conformity to the character of God as revealed in Christ. Shall we pray? Heavenly Father, thank you that you are exactly that. You are our Heavenly Father, and as your kids, you want us to grow. Please continue to contribute to that growth in our life. In our lives, for Jesus' sake. Amen.